Welcome to the Expat Empire Podcast, the podcast where you can hear from expats around the world and learn how you can join them. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for the seventh episode of the Expat Empire Podcast. Today, we will be hearing from Devin Nambiar. Devin has spent a few years working in Seoul, South Korea, followed by Beijing and Shanghai, China. We discuss many topics, including how to navigate the challenges of getting integrated into life as an expat in South Korea, steps to take to direct your career toward opportunities in Asia, tips for learning both the Korean and Chinese languages, and much more. Without further ado, let's start the conversation. Hey, Devin. Thanks so much for joining the Expat Empire podcast. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. Let's get started with a little bit about your background. Where are you originally from? Where do you live now? And what kind of work do you do? Yeah, for sure. Right now, I work for a games, gaming company called Electronic Arts, which uh, you may have heard of. Um, and I'm the, the head of product for, for Asia Pacific, kind of working on a lot of our games out here and in Asia and our Asian markets. Um, so I'm originally from the Bay Area. I uh, grew up in the East Bay and um, traveled around quite a bit uh, since then. But now I'm based in, in Shanghai and uh, travel for work, uh, but you know most of the time spent here in China. And I've been in China now overall for about, I'd say, I think three and a half years. Coming up on four years, it's crazy. So where did your interest in working abroad originally come from? Uh, did you have some sort of seminal travel experience that taught you or, or really gave you that idea that, hey, I want to be abroad, or was it through work and, you know, needing to, to be abroad that way? What was your process like? Yeah, so, so it's interesting. I mean, my, my, this is my, my second stint uh, working abroad, and I worked abroad before in, in South Korea uh, first. So I guess my original motivations for going abroad were, you know, when I made that initial jump in Korea. And at that time, it was, it was interesting. I mean, I had spent pockets of time growing up in, in, in Asia, um, at, you know, summers and things like that, um, but never, never really lived there you know, permanently on a permanent basis. And, you know, when, when I had decided to move to Korea, when I was thinking about approaching the situation, I was, you know, working in a job that I wasn't super excited about. I was in the uh, investment banking field. Um, and it was, yeah, and it was, it was back in the, the day where it, you know, it wasn't a great time to be an investment banker. And it was just, uh, I just didn't feel really um, invested in the work I was doing didn't feel excited about it. But I did enjoy, you know, working with technology companies and I was a I was a TMT banker and, and worked with a lot of tech companies and, and was interested in tech but also was interested in just doing something crazy um, as my next move and so when I was thinking about it I was you know going back to my alma mater and looking around at opportunities that were, were available through you know our career services there and just kind of looking around and I had you know, friends who were living abroad at the time, and some of my friends were telling me, you know, just you should just go back. You should go to Asia. Um, you should go to Japan or something. And I was like, yeah, that might be a cool idea. But it was interesting because uh, through through my my university, through our, our career services, I found an opportunity in Korea. You know, it was kind of a long shot. It wouldn't have been my first choice, I guess. I thought about it for a while, but eventually applied and and talked to the people over there. And it was a role kind of producing and developing uh, English language learning apps 
uh, for adult learners. Um, and I was interested in, in education at the time. I had done a lot of mentoring um, in university and before that. So, you know, the, the chance to kind of combine that with, with technology seemed like a co- compelling opportunity. Korea seemed like something I knew nothing about at the time. You know, I just took the plunge at that point. Um, and I, I was interviewing around in the States as well, corporate development jobs and things like that. Nothing really excited me. So I just figured, hey, what the heck? It'll be, you know, one year, two years. Um, I'll learn a lot and, and maybe I'll come back and, you know, resume a financial career or, or dive more into tech. And um, that's how it sort of got started. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Uh, had you been to Korea at that point? I actually had not been to Korea and I didn't know anything about it, but I did have friends who were telling me that it was a really fun place. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't just a, a cold turkey decision. I, I spent a lot of time talking to the people uh, in Korea. I spent a lot of time talking to friends and um, it took me about maybe two months to, to make the decision until I finally made it. Cool. So what was it like when you first got off the plane and were you know trying to get set up in Seoul? Were there any major surprises? You know, what really stuck out to you about that time? I was lucky in that um, the company I was working for, they kind of set everything up for me. So they they got me set up with a real estate agent to, to go apartment hunting. They took care of my visa and um, things like that. And they, they provided me with you know, sort of a lay of the land. So I think a lot of the logistical stuff early on was was easier than I had I expected it to be. Um, the language barrier was, was actually pretty tough. I remember... It was really funny, and just to show the extent of my ignorance, you know, having spent uh, time in Japan growing up, I, I assumed that since Korea was close to Japan, like maybe they spoke Japanese as a second language in the same way that, you know, Californians, a lot of them speak Spanish, but that didn't really work out so well for me. Find a lot of funny little mishaps at first, but the language barrier was uh, more pronounced than, than I thought it would be. I mean, work was work was in English, but, um, you know, just just finding my way around and meeting people and things like that. Um, so that's one of the reasons I decided to, to start studying Korean early on was just out of sheer frustration. Yeah, definitely. What were some of the best ways that you found to study Korean? How did how were you able to pick it up on the ground there? Obviously, you've probably got folks that you can speak to on a regular basis, you know, grab a coffee and practice. But outside of that, were there any particular classes, textbooks, things like that that helped out? Yeah, so I mean, Korea has a really interesting culture with learning English, which is, you know, an academy culture where everyone goes to academy. And it seems like, um, you know, that that's one of the first places I started was it seemed like there were Korean language academies, too, uh, for foreigners to, to go, you know, after work and, and learn, you know, three to five days a week. And so I started doing that for the first, uh, you know, six to nine months or so. I was lucky because I had, you know, experienced speaking Japanese and the languages are Lexically, they're very similar. Um, structurally, they're very similar. So a lot of the, the grammar concepts and things were really easy for me to pick up. And, and after, after the nine months, six to nine months in, in academy, what I did was I just started you know, meeting a lot of Korean people and, and speaking as much as I could and texting in Korean and things like that. And uh, it, it really kind of accelerated the pace of my learning. It became a very pleasant place to live after a uh, shorter than expected amount of time living there. Right. In terms of picking it up to, you know, let's say a fairly fluent daily, you know, situational, comfortable level, how long do you think that that took you? It took me about a year, I think. I mean, is it one of those things that's become useful throughout your career? It definitely has. Um, you know, I, as I said before, I, I cover Asia Pacific right now, and I, I work in Korea a fair bit. And although we are an international company, it really helps to speak the language, especially when you're working with uh, external partners and things like that. And, Having a background in Japanese, I think, also helped. I, I spend some time in Japan, but what I end up doing now is I, as I hop from country, country to country in Asia, and I'm, 
you know, I'll spend a week in Japan. I'll, I'll get my Japanese. It'll be rusty, and then I'll I'll get it ramped up, and then I'll have to leave, and then um, I'll have to do it all over again. So um, I try to I try to keep up as much as I can, but it's uh, it, it, my head hurts a little bit right now. <laughs> <laughs> not a, not a surprise at all. Uh, when you first arrived in Korea, it sounds like a lot of things were set up for you in terms of your visa, living arrangements, and so forth. But if you were to give some advice around the best parts of the city to live in, based on your you know experience there and where you've lived, what would you say uh, you know to folks that are interested in maybe making a move? Yeah, for sure. Um, so just to back up a little bit about the visa. Um, so I, the company did take care of it for me. It was an an E five visa, which is a professional working visa. And I had that done before I even came to the country. There was a little bit of lead time where I had to do things in the States um, at the consulate and things like that and uh, go get a police background check, et cetera. Um, so there is some running around that you have to do. And then, you know, sending all those documents to the company and having them take it from there to get my, my E5 visa. Um, it was pretty seamless after that. When you want to get a foreign working visa or something like that, expect to do a little legwork, I think, in your home country before you before you make the move. And so, you know, a couple months would probably give you enough time. Okay, great. In, in terms of apartment hunting and things like that, like I said, they, uh, they provided me a realtor. But in terms of the best place to live, it really depends on, in Korea, what you're, what you're looking for. Uh, so for me, I wanted to live in, you know, kind of a business district that was close and central to everything. So I ended up living in uh, Gangnam, which is a uh, you know pretty affluent area. It's a little bit pricier, but it's very convenient. Like I said, it depends on what people are looking for. Um, if if it's more of a you know a student type thing, I would I would recommend Hongdae, which is an area with a lot of students in it. Or um, Itaewon is another fun area that used to be kind of a dive, but it's it's started shaping up now, and it's a, a very international part of the city. If you're looking for, you know, cafes and bars and meeting other international folks. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, all those sound like great spots. And having visited myself to a couple of those areas, it sounds like some good choices. In terms of your friend group, were you able to really integrate with local Koreans or were it more, was it more other foreigners? How did you make your initial friend group and how did it develop over the years that you were in Korea? Yeah, um, so it was interesting. I mean, uh, just from people at work. Um, I, I met people through, you know, coworkers and things like that. And that's how I started meeting people. And it, the first people I, I met were, were expats, were internationals uh, working abroad. Some of them were working in consulting. Um, some of them were teaching. Some of them were doing other types of jobs. Pretty diverse in terms of the types of occupations and the types of people you meet, but all internationals at first. And then as I started getting better at Korean, I started making a more concerted effort to uh, make more Korean friends. And um, the way I did that was through, you know, sort of language exchange clubs where, you know, you would go and sort of talk to talk to people in English or Korean, um, you know, in the evenings. And um, I would go with a few other like international friends, guys and girls, and we would just go and, and do that. And uh, we met a lot of friends that way and expanded our, our social circle into, into a lot more locals. From there, you know, over the next few months, it kind of evolved to having, you know, half and half, uh, a lot of local friends, but a lot of uh, internationals and expats as well. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a good route to go. Did you change jobs in Korea? And uh, if yes, you know, what made you decide to do that and how did you do so? If not, did you or your friends find that difficult to do in terms of actually finding other opportunities? Yeah, I, I did not. I know a couple friends who did. It was really hit or miss. There, there wasn't any like set 
portal or place to go if you wanted to, to change jobs while you were in Korea. Um, there were some forums and other things that I think my friends went on. Um, some of my friends were, were trying to move. One of my friends, for example, was a teacher and he wanted to move into advanced like AP and SAT prep because it was, it paid more. So that, that was uh, more of kind of, you know, just talking to people and, and meeting people and, um, posting on forums and things like that and finding opportunities. Um, but another friend of mine uh, was, you know, a consultant and, and wanted to, to switch careers into, into finance and, um, this person was Korean American, so they, they were at least fluent in Korean and had some Korean relatives, um, I think helped them with that. I would say that if you're an international and you come to you know, a country like Korea and then you decide you want to switch jobs, it might take some legwork to, to figure out the best route. Um, I did not have to do that, thankfully, but I'm, I'm sure that there are resources out there. I just, I guess I don't really know, uh, what the best ones are. I would say just talking to people and, and, and getting that desire out there is probably a good place to go. Right. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. How did you find the cost of living compared to the typical salaries that foreigners can expect to earn in Seoul? Do you feel like you were living a pretty luxurious, lavish lifestyle or more, you know, making, making ends meet? I was sort of in the middle. I felt like cost of living was overall lower than the States. Housing, it really depends. Like Gangnam area, again, is a more affluent area so that the rent is more on par with, say, L.A. or I wouldn't say New York or San Francisco, but maybe L.A. or, or other, other major cities like Chicago in the States. I think it's, and it's it can get up there in price. That said, there are a lot of, you know, cheaper housing options that you can find. Um, cost of living other than housing was was pretty manageable. So I, I would say that Korea was, you know, it, all my experiences being abroad is that cost of living is generally cheaper in terms of day-to-day things like food, uh, gasoline, other, you know, random expenses. Rent, it's, you know, it really depends on 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 how nice of a place you want to live in. Um, like, for example, my place in Korea was, like I said, on par with a, a, a cheaper or like mid-tier city in, in the States. Um, but my place now in Shanghai is pretty much on par with uh, San Francisco. So it uh, it depends. I think there's a pretty wide price range. Do you think there's any particular characteristics that would make somebody a good fit for living in Seoul? Living in Seoul. One of the challenges for me, I think living in Seoul, when I when I first, you know, I would say the first six months that took adjusting for me was Korea is a very homogenous society. Even, even you know, 10, 10 years ago, where people had not had a lot of exposure to foreigners or foreigners who did not look Korean. The thing I had to get over was, you know, being stared at, um, which uh, was something I was not really used to. And generally, just living in a homogenous society, I think there are going to be uh, some barriers to that. So I think thick skin is um, a good one and not taking things personally. And also just language barrier. I'd say people who are adaptable um, and have thick skin are, are generally good fits for, for living abroad, and um, especially a place like Korea. Although Korea has changed quite a bit. Um, in the last 10 years. I remember when I started speaking Korean and, you know, when I would go and handle my daily life, people would be so surprised back then. Um, but now uh, I go to Korea and I speak Korean and nobody even bats an eye, uh, taxi drivers or anyone. So it's, uh, it, I think the language has become more, it's had more exposure on the global scale and things have, have changed uh, pretty rapidly there. Very cool. Are there any other tips that you'd have for our listeners related to Korea? I would say, you know, just if you're planning on moving to Korea, um, just be as adaptable as you can. Um, don't think, don't take things personally at first. I would, I would really try to learn Korean, at least to a functional level, uh, because I think it makes life a whole lot easier. And um, the language is, is more accessible than 
uh, than people think. So I think that would be my, uh, my advice to people uh, going there. And I would say get out and, and talk to as many people as you can. Don't just stick into your um, international circle, uh, but go and try to meet all kinds of people. Fantastic. Thanks so much for the info on Korea. What did you do after that job ended? And actually, how long did you, were you there in total? Yeah, so I was there for about two and a half years, almost three years. Um, and then I moved back to the U.S., and it was um, it was interesting moving back to the U.S. Um, you know, when you think about re- reverse culture shock, I think Korea is a country that you definitely would have a lot of reverse culture shock coming back because Korean culture has a lot of, uh, Korean society in particular has a lot of distinct aspects of how people behave in public um, that you're not used to in the states. For example, um, like I mentioned, being stared at as a as a foreigner, but but also. Koreans tend to stare a lot in general, even at other Koreans. Uh, if someone walks onto the train with looking very disheveled, everyone will kind of look at him, and it's pretty normal. Um, and if you do that in, you know, the Bay Area or in New York, you'll get, a, you know, at best a dirty look, or someone will try to fight you. Um, <laughs> so that that uh, that take that took a little getting used to coming back. There were other aspects of reverse culture shock, just not being as up to speed with. You know what was going on in my own home country, uh, not being as up to speed with uh, Silicon Valley and, and what all my friends were doing, and you know what were the good you know things to be talking about and focusing on. But that type of stuff was. It, it took about three to six months when I came back to really get over that, which was a pretty long time. Also, a lot of friends who I had had back in the states had moved to other places, so that was difficult too. But when I came back, I actually joined a a nonprofit uh, volunteering organization with a lot of other young people. And that kind of got me back to the social scene back home. And it kind of helped me get over that, that reverse culture shock. Right. Yeah, I can imagine that would be very difficult. And in fact, I experienced basically the opposite of that moving from Japan to Germany. So in Japan, as you probably know, you know, people are not looking at each other on the train. It's really more, you know, eyes down, you know, looking forward type culture. And so going from that to getting on the train in Berlin, where you know, anyone that comes on is probably going to be looked at closely by somebody, not for any particular reason, but just, you know, given that's the culture here, it it often took me by surprise. I would think, is there something on my face? <laughs> you know, why is this guy giving me this serious look? And getting used to that has, has taken a while. And I realized, you know, it's just the, that difference in culture. And it's something that maybe seeps into your subconscious a bit without you realizing it, you know, uh, that you know, what's normal and what's not and getting used to those differences. Yeah, definitely. So it sounds like you started to work at this nonprofit. Um, you know, how did that job develop and, and what did you do and sort of as you as you got more comfortable in San Francisco? So I was saying I joined a nonprofit as a volunteering endeavor just to get kind of back into the social scene. Um, in terms of work, what I what I did was worked at I worked at an ed tech company when I came back. Um, it was kind of a more a natural segue um, because I had been working in, I guess you would call it ed tech in Korea. Um, so I, I worked for sort of a, it, it was a startup called Grade Schools, and they were, it was like a Yelp for for school ratings and reviews. And um, I was in, in product and analytics, um, again, sort of a similar role that I had, had followed after I left uh, the financial sector. And uh, it was, you know, it, even working life coming back and, and how to interact professionally is, is very different in uh, Korea and, and in the States. And in Korea, I had... Um, you know, international colleagues and also local colleagues that I had to interact with. You know, the, the interaction, the way we interacted was totally different. Very m- much more hierarchical in Korea and the States. It's much more agile. And 
um, you know, you're expected to be a self-starter and take initiative and things like that. And, um, you know, I was used to that having, having worked in, in banking for a while, but it was, uh, it was, you know, took a little bit of getting used to, to come back to. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. So how did you end up making it back to China then? After starting back in the U.S. After I uh, after I worked in ed tech for a while and I got kind of bored with it and you know I transitioned to another job in the U.S. which was uh, my first gaming job which was Kabam and um, I I had always been a gamer I was always been interested in games so um, that seemed like a, a pretty natural move for me to make and I was excited about a few gaming companies uh, I ended up going with Kabam and the opportunity came up to start taking business trips out to to China. And the the thing that kind of drove this initially, you know, go start spending time in China because we had a big office in Beijing at the time, uh, was that I was still dating someone in Korea. Uh, it was partially, a, it was a personal decision to be, uh, to try to be closer to her. thought, you know, if I can take business trips to Beijing, you know, I can hop over to Korea or vice versa. It's only a one hour flight. So that's how that started working initially. But, you know, as I took more and more trips to China, I, I started realizing how compelling the opportunity there was. And, you know, we, we took a, you know, two and a half, three month kind of extended business trip there. And that really cemented to me that, you know, for, for Kabam and for what I wanted to do, a lot of our game development was was kind of shifting to Beijing and was centered around there anyway. Um, so working in product and working in the Beijing office made a lot of sense and it made a lot of sense professionally. It also made sense for my personal life, given I was, I was dating someone in South Korea. So it was a pretty easy decision, uh, when I got the invite to go, um, to, to sort of pack my bags again, I would say that going to China was a whole other learning experience and, and moving to Beijing after having lived in Korea, having spent time in Japan, um, thinking that, you know, I know East Asia pretty well and then coming to China and getting, you know, I know Mike Tyson says like every everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Well, that's how I sort of felt uh, about China and moving to Beijing because it was just so different. Right. What were some of those main differences, both in the work environment as well as in your personal life? So, I mean, I think in the the work environment was was a pretty smooth transition because a lot of people working in the Beijing office were were internationals. My boss was international. There was a, a good group of expats, but. I think just day-to-day life, you get, you have this you know, social grace in, in Korea and Japan that you're, you're expected to behave with, and, and you're really not um, in China, especially in Beijing. People were much more direct. Um, they didn't seem to care about niceties or you know, propriety or you know, things like that. And you know, a lot of things were, were just tough. I, I think the language barrier, too, was another difficulty, but whereas in Japan and Korea, people they don't expect you to speak their language and they try to make an effort uh, to bridge the gap. In China, everyone, you know, kind of expected you to speak Mandarin. Um, and, you know, if I, if, I, if I said to someone, hey, I don't speak Mandarin, you know, like, and they would just keep speaking Mandarin to me and their conversation got nowhere. Um, so that was a little bit uh, shocking as well to me. Um, and something that I had to navigate and trying to learn at least, you know, have a functional level of Mandarin so that I could uh, conduct, you know, day-to-day life. That was something that was uh, an initial challenge for me coming to China. And in terms of building your language skills there, what are some of the main routes that you, you know, went down and how long did it take for you to get to that level of comfort in daily life to where you weren't, you know, struggling to find the words that you needed to communicate something to a taxi driver or, you know, those basic situations? Yeah, so I um, I was lucky because Kabam set up a uh, tutoring for me where uh, a private tutor would come to our office and I, I'd meet with her like three times a week in a conference room and practice Mandarin and learn Mandarin that way. Um, and that was good because it was one-on-one tutoring. Um, and then from that, I just 
sub, I, I supplemented that with, you know, podcasts and other types of, there's a uh, Chinese pod is a, is a good, um, online podcast that you can use to, to learn and study Mandarin. So I started listening to that for a while. Admittedly, I think Chinese is actually uh, Mandarin specifically is a, it's a very difficult language because of the writing system. Um, uh, whereas, you know, Korean, I would say the writing system you can actually learn in a few days. It's a, it's a, it, it's an alphabet system and there's, you know, only a, 30 or 40 characters that combine to make the words. Um, so it's very accessible in that sense, because whenever you don't know a word, you can look it up. Um, but uh, the amount of characters in, in Mandarin, it serves as kind of a barrier to learning, because if you don't know the character and you you can't hit copy paste for some reason, if it's just a sign, you have no way of knowing what you're reading. Um, so that made the, I think the learning curve a lot steeper for Mandarin, also tones, something that uh, is, is much you know, it's, it's another difficult aspect of the language. Um, grammatically, it's not a very tough language at all. You just kind of combine words together. So that part of it was good. It's just more similar to English. But um, yeah, I would say, you know, private tutoring is a good way to go. I would say for, for Mandarin, speaking is essential, especially getting the tones down, um, because otherwise people won't know what you're saying. Even though you, you say the right thing, you say it in the wrong tone. You're going to have challenges and people are going to, you know, misinterpret what you're saying. It could lead to some awkward situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So now that you've actually learned multiple different languages, been in these different international environments, did you find it easier to pick up the language from that standpoint, knowing some Japanese and Korean already? Yeah, I, I did. Um, and those languages, even though China is grammatically different, a lot of the words are derivative, uh, similar. Um, so that part of it was easier. But I think just in terms of approaching, how do you approach language learning? I think that part has gotten easier because once, you, once you've once you done it a few times, you know the steps you'd have to take, you know at least what you should be exposed to, you know you should be speaking a fair amount, you should be listening to things and, and trying to expose yourself to all different types of media, spoken, written, and listening. And, and, and just how to go about that, I think, has, has been easier, that, that process has become more solidified in my head. So that part of it is, has, has definitely gotten easier. And as you first moved to China, it sounds like Kabam organized the visa for you. Is there any particular advice that you'd have for other folks looking to make that move to China uh, in terms of visa if they're not able to get a company to sponsor them straight away? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing you could do is just go on a tourist visa and, and look for work that way. If you were really intent on moving to China, for example, when I first started coming to China with Kabam, I started on a tourist visa. And until I really made it my permanent home, that's when we did the uh, the work permit and the residence called the residence permit. Um, you have to get an employment permit as well, um, take a medical test, and there's a whole process. So I would if you don't have a company to sponsor you, I would recommend just going on a tourist visa and, and starting to, you know, find opportunities that way. Probably email them first before you, you know, book your trip and try to set up some meetings and then go over and take a trip to China and see how it's like, um, meet with those companies and talk to them and things like that. But yeah, the, the visa process generally if you're if you're relocating to China or if you already have an offer, the company will generally take care of that and there is a process that, you know, does require some lead time as well, similar to to how it how it was with Korea. Um, I actually changed jobs when I was in China, right? So I left Kabam, and, um, which was based in Beijing, and uh, eventually moved to Electronic Arts, which uh, our Asia hub is in, in Shanghai. So um, I actually had to you know, cancel my work permit, which is only valid for working at Kabam. I had to leave the country. Um, I had to reapply for 
a new work permit, and that that set up a whole process with you know getting a new residence permit uh, issued from Shanghai, um, taking another medical exam, and that that was an additional sort of three months in between. So it worked out for me. I just I took a three month sabbatical, which you know I had a I had a blast just traveling the world and and meeting friends and things like that. Um, but at the same time, just just doing my visa and you know, looking for looking for apartments in Shanghai online and just sort of talking to people and uh, meeting them online. And, and then when I finally did come here, it, it set myself up well for getting an apartment, um, having a social circle and, and things like that. Yeah, definitely. In terms of working at foreign companies, so over there in China, you've worked at Kabam, now you're working at EA. Do you find that it would be probably easier for other foreigners to find work at international companies or is the you know Chinese domestic company market open to foreigners as well? I would say both are, are pretty open. Um, I think just in terms of interviewing the recruiting process, it's a lot more predictable at international companies. Um, but a lot of the foreign companies now are, are very sophisticated and they're looking for international talent. I mean, you may have seen Xiaomi, which is a major phone company, hired Hugo Barra several years back as their and poached him away from Google and uh, DD, which is the uh, you know ride sharing, uh, the king of ride sharing in China, they're looking for international talent too. And Alibaba has offices all over the world. So um, the companies are diversifying quite a bit in terms of their talent base, the, the the local companies. One thing to keep in mind with local companies is they will often pay what's called local salary, which is frankly just lower than a lot of the international companies are paying. Um, and they make it up sometimes in bonus or sometimes they don't. It just depends. Like Tencent, for example, um, they they pay a pretty low salary. But if you know if you work for Tencent Games and the games do well, you get you know three four years worth of salary and bonus. Um, so they they make it up that way. But some companies just a lot of local companies just pay lower salaries overall. And I think um, you just have to be prepared for that if you want to work at a local company. How would you compare working in Beijing and Shanghai? And how was that initial process in terms of getting an apartment and getting, you know, building a friend group, just getting set up there? So I would say that uh, Shanghai is a lot more international than Beijing. Um, and I'm actually thankful that I, I went to Beijing first because it kind of grounded me in at least a base level of Mandarin. Um, in Shanghai, you don't really have to speak Mandarin because a lot of people, like you said, are... Uh, our international and a lot of the locals have, have at least a, a working level uh, command of English to, you know, run a shop or, you know, services or taxi drivers, etc. Um, so you don't have to speak Mandarin as much in Shanghai. Um, if you come to Shanghai first, you may not need to learn Mandarin. I would still recommend it as a, you, you should learn Mandarin because it's uh, it's a great way to understand the people um, and it's just highly useful. Shanghai is more international. It's the English is more widely spoken. Um, a lot of people say that the quality of life is better in Shanghai. I don't see that to be. I don't really find that to be true. I think it really depends on the people you surround yourself with. So I had a really good group of people in Beijing, and it made living in Beijing a blast. Um, in Shanghai, I've got good friends too. Um, so Shanghai is also fun, um, and it, it just really depends. So how long did you work for Kabam in Beijing? And then how were you able to make the step over to EA? So I was at Kabam Beijing for a bit over two years. And I was with Kabam San Francisco for, for some time before that. But when I wanted to make the move to EA, um, it was, you know, I, I didn't even really know I wanted to leave Kabam when I started talking to EA. It was kind of a, a friend kind of mentioned that 
um, there was a really compelling role that um, he had heard of through a recruiter and he wasn't the right person for it, but he thought that I was. And from that, I just started talking to to EA. And, you know, I, I like I said, I was not planning to leave Beijing. I was I was pretty happy. And but the conversation started becoming more serious. And um, the more I started learning about the opportunity, I, I realized there was a lot more responsibility and this was a, a real step up. So I started taking it more seriously. And the whole process of, of talking to EA and you know making a decision took about four months, uh, I would say. So it was not a, a short process. I made several like you know day trips to Shanghai just to meet with people here and met with people when I was back in San Francisco at EA's headquarters and things like that just to get get comfortable. And then I just decided to make the move. So once I did, I uh, you know I gave like a month notice at Kabam and then I went on my sabbatical and did all my visa stuff and. When I came back to China, it was uh, coming to Shanghai. And when I first got here, I did, I did not have an apartment yet. So I stayed in a service department for the first month um, and just kind of looked at places with realtors that um, that EA had provided me and ended up finding a place that I liked within about a month. Is it a pretty competitive rental market? I found here in Berlin, it can take people more than three months to find a place. And it's always a real question mark when people arrive, how long it's going to take, where they're going to end up. Uh, do you find that to be the case in Shanghai as well? It's a competitive rental market for sure. Um, places go pretty fast, but there's a lot of inventory that opens up. So um, I think if you want to move into a place, you can probably do it within you know two weeks. I would say was from the time you sign the lease to to your moving date. It, it really just depends. It's, it seems to be pretty easy for a lot of the people I've I've talked to here. The buyer's market here is crazy, right? Like as soon as a, a, a house goes on the market in Shanghai, it's it's sold within within three weeks, which is an insane insane velocity compared to the states. But yeah, the rental market, there's always stuff popping up, and a lot of a lot of Chinese will buy multiple properties and then leave the other ones empty and try to rent them out. So there's a lot of rental uh, inventory here in in Shanghai, and I would imagine other cities in China too. What particular areas do you find most attractive to? Foreigners, obviously, I guess every place has its own flavor, but in terms of your experience, where would you recommend people looking for a flat? I mean, if they were coming to, to Shanghai, I would recommend an area called uh, Jing'an. Jing'an is where I live. Shintiandi is another kind of area with a lot of you know international presence. Uh, French Concession is an area that a lot of expats like. It's, uh, it's a very quaint and tree-lined streets and um, it's got an old uh, French influence there. So those are some areas that I would I would recommend uh, to people coming to Shanghai. As for Beijing, there's a there's a large area called Chaoyang, which is um, you know encompasses a lot of different sub neighborhoods. But uh, within that, Sanlitun, which is uh, an expat sort of hub, a um, lot of restaurants, a lot of things to do, places to go. I would recommend Sanlitun. I would also recommend the business district, uh, which is where I lived when I was in Beijing. It was called Guomao. And uh, it was a lot quieter, uh, but it was so close to where everything was happening. Um, so I, I like that about uh, that neighborhood. A lot of other people end up living in the north of Beijing, then it's the northwest in, in Haidian, or in 798 district in the northeast. Um, those are good neighborhoods as well. Great. And using Chinese at the workplace, is that something that you do? Or obviously you're hired for your English language abilities and you know, you're... you're uh, understanding of different cultures across Asia, but do you actually speak Chinese at work much? I speak Chinese um, in some meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really depends. At the at the leadership level, we speak English, um, but when I'm di- diving in with the actual development teams, a lot of times those meetings will be in Mandarin, and I'll sit in and listen and 
Um, my Mandarin is to a level of proficiency now where I can understand pretty much whatever they're saying. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll respond and ask them in English because their listening comprehension is good and they'll just reply in Mandarin. Or sometimes I'll ask in Mandarin. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty fluid, I would say. That's great. Congratulations on that. That's a huge achievement. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with my level. It could be a lot better, but um, it's, it's at least functional. <laughs> Definitely. Sounds like it. So what has kept you in China for these years and where do you see you know, your future? Do you see yourself continuing to build your career in China or maybe across Asia or going back to the States, trying Europe? You know, what are your thoughts these days? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm kind of a global guy, I would say, in terms of I, I like working abroad. I like working in different places. I think it's really exciting. So I don't have any immediate desire to go back to the States right now. Eventually, I would like to if the opportunity uh, presents itself. And it's, if it's a compelling opportunity, it really depends. But uh, right now, China is, is rife with opportunity itself. Um, a lot of the local technologies companies are kind of establishing themselves as, as global power players here. Didi is one example. Tencent is another. Alibaba. Um, Didi is already worth more than than Uber, and it's only you know its its home base is ride sharing in China, and that's pretty pretty powerful. And Alibaba is catching up to Amazon. And one of the things I like about China, one of the things that's both exciting and intimidating about it, is its size. Um, the sheer, you know, the sheer amount of people. And when you think about the culture here, which is comparing to Japanese and Korean culture, which I think is more, you follow the hierarchy, you do what you're supposed to do, you get yourself a nice, you know, secure job and you move up. I think in China, people are incredibly entrepreneurial and a lot more aggressive um, and very motivated. And you can, you can see that come through in, in how they, they do business and um, how they, they capitalize on opportunities and things like that. Uh, so it's, it's an exciting place to be. It's a much more, it's, it's a very competitive place to be. Um, you're, you, know, you're, you have competition from you know, locals and other expats. There are a lot of smart people here. It's, you know, the, the tech landscape and, and how it uh, interacts with the government regulation is, is very interesting. So I think those things are keeping me in China for the time being. I also, you know, even though I'm based here physically, I focus on Japan, Korea, and Southeast Asia as well. And Southeast Asia is another next 10 years opportunity with the way mobile and credit card penetration is increasing in that region. And, you know, capitalizing on that and building our presence there is something that, that excites me. But, you know, Europe is also, and Europe and the Middle East are also big markets as well. Um, and, and I would I would be open to, you know, moving anywhere, I would say, if the opportunity is compelling enough. Um, going back to the States would also be an option. Do you have any other insights toward resources, tools, services, anything that you'd recommend to folks that are interested in learning more about opportunities in Korea and China? For China, there, you, there are some online publications, um, the Beijinger, the Shanghaiist, which you know I would recommend checking out not only for um, opportunities, but also just for, for living in, in those parts of China. I would download WeChat, to be honest. Um, if you're looking to work in China, I would download WeChat because a lot of companies, uh, you know, surface opportunities on WeChat newsfeed now. You know, you can start meeting people on you know, WeChat groups and starting a social group there. So I think that's another thing to do if, you, if you're serious about coming to China is figuring out, becoming an expert in WeChat. I would just say, you know, be open. Um, don't underestimate how many international companies are now trying to build out presence in, in Asia and other parts of the world. And, you know, they, if you're working in, in the States for a multinational, um, there may be a lot of opportunities to, you know, take a year and do something else in another emerging market. So I would, you know, be open and, and looking for those opportunities and be, be as adaptable as possible and just be open to change. 
When you joined Kabam, was one of the driving factors for your joint decision to join the company the fact that there were international offices, or that was just an opportunity that came down the pipe later on? That was one of the reasons, to be honest, right? Like if if it was, hey, do you want to go move to China and work for this local Chinese gaming company because they, we have a partnership with them or something? If Kabam had pitched that to me, I don't know if I would have gone. Um, I think the fact that you know working for a multinational or working for an international company gave me a little bit more security. And there's always the option, you know, when you're working in an international company, I think it's sometimes seen as a career development opportunity to go spend some time abroad. And then if you want to come back, um, you're generally viewed as having a much broader skill set. And um, there's opportunities for career advancement that open up back home. So uh, that's something I would think about as well. Right. Is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners in terms of advice or your experiences? I think the only other thing I would say is go abroad, to be honest. Um, I think it's invaluable experience. I think everyone, you know, even if you plan on living in the States forever, you know, living in your home country, I think you should go abroad and work for a couple of years. Um, I think not, not doing so when you're young is kind of a, you're doing yourself a disservice. Yeah, I completely echo that sentiment. And I've heard plenty of people, even from a standpoint of, you know, regretting not to take advantage of study abroad opportunities as an example, you know, looking back and thinking, well, I had that time, I had that opportunity, and I, I let that slip by. So whether, you know, you're in school and able to take advantage of study abroad or thinking about building an international career, at least for a portion of it, like you mentioned, I think that's a great, you know, mindset to have going forward. Take the plunge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing currently? You know, I have a LinkedIn, Twitter as well. I, I do write a little bit on uh, Pocket Gamer I, and LinkedIn. I speak at conferences around the world too. So I think that would be the best way to connect. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your insights. This has been extremely fascinating, informative, and I'm sure that uh, our listeners around the world would appreciate it as well. So big thank you and, and hope to have you on the show again sometime in the future. Absolutely, man. Um, and uh, appreciate, you know, you inviting me to be on the show. I'm Definitely uh, love sharing my experiences. Thanks to Devin for sharing his story with us. You can find the full transcript for this episode at expatempire.com. If you are interested in sharing your story on Expat Empire, please consider submitting a user post about your expat experiences on expatempire.com or email us at podcast at expatempire.com and let us know more about your international background. Music on this episode was produced by Eli Hermit. Please check him out on Bandcamp and Spotify. Keep up to date on new Expat Empire podcast episodes by pressing the subscribe button in the podcasting app of your choice. You can also visit expatempire.com and sign up for the newsletter to get notified about new podcast episodes and receive a ton of free expat and travel-related content. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, at Exped Empire, so be sure to follow us there. Last, but certainly not least, we would appreciate a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps new listeners to find us and lets us know that we are putting out content that you appreciate. Check back for our next episode in two weeks. See you then.